Hello and welcome to another very special Empire podcast. Our guest today in this special interview podcast is the one and only Danny Boyle, director of France and of course the man who brought us the Queen jumping out of a helicopter during the Olympic opening ceremony and of course a hell of a lot more. We touch on his whole career over the course of this interview so look forward to tidbits like which country in the world had a lifeless ordinary on its number one spot in the box office for three whole weeks. Hint, it's not the Netherlands. And why now is the time for Danny to make his train spotting sequel, Porno, after all these years? Interviewing the great man were Ollie Richards and Nick DeSemelin. Enjoy. Uh, thank you very much for coming in, Danny Boyle. Pleasure. Um, we are here to talk about trance and all the many, many things you've worked on in your career. Uh, one of the interesting things, I think, about trance is that you started it such a long time ago. Yeah. Because this was before you even started work on the Olympics opening ceremony, wasn't it? Yeah, we've, we've been working on it for a while, actually. And um, originally, so much so that originally we were, it, the plan was to shoot it in uh, Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to make a film in New York. I think most film directors want to try and have a crack at the sissy. Um, and we were going to have an, an English girl play the part of the hypnotherapist because we, we always wanted her, Elizabeth Lamb, we always wanted her to feel like she was from outside the city, where the, the noir city, the, the crime is taking place. Um, but then we got the Olympic Games and we, and, and we decided to switch it because it can kind of happen in any city, mm-hmm. really, any major city where crime and anonymity is available and a, and a, and a, a daily occurrence. And... Um, so we moved it to London, and we then shifted the part of Elizabeth Lamb to an American, and that's how we got Rosario Dawson for it. And you, what you get is that you get a kind of Californian kind of therapy tone. Yes. You know, that idea of we cure, we talk, we cure. You know, we can everything's available. Therapy is available to everyone. It's a good thing. It's a benign thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so you get that relaxation that you get with that kind of. So that that's the that's what you get with that, which is really which is a nice ingredient, an additional ingredient to get with the part. And having that kind of gap between when you're filming and then when it's released, does that just give you the temptation to tinker with everything for ages and ages and ages, or can you let it go? It was interesting because it's actually pretty unique, really. To so we shot the film like in the autumn of the 2011 when we were pre- preparing the games and then we left it we we did a kind of quick edit John Harris the editor did a quick edit and then we l- put literally put it on ice for actually as it turned out to be 8 months now very o- unless your actor is changing shape like De Niro mm-hmm. in Raging Bull or Tom Hanks in Castaway you never get the chance to do that because the investors have, in, have paid for the film to be made and they want it out as quickly as possible. So it was, it was, a, it was unique, really, and nobody knew quite what it would like. I imagined it wouldn't make that much difference. You're so obsessed when you're shooting, you remember everything, and it's like a saturation level of knowledge of all the details of what you've shot. And you, you can't imagine that you would ever lose that, but you do because obviously your brain gets filled up with something else, in this case, the opening ceremony. So when we came back to it, and watched it. It was interesting. I, I couldn't remember things. I, I, I couldn't even remember bits of the story, and it was like it's a bit of a shock watching bits of it. And uh, that was a great thing because it sort of gives you a glimpse back to how it is the first time you read a script mm-hmm. and how it is for an audience, of course, the first time they see a movie. And in this case, because it is a very complex narrative, um, that was incredibly useful. And we realised that we'd been guilty of that which I believe is common on a film like this, which is that you're terrified of giving it away. Mm. So you play your cards far too close to your chest. You don't leave any clues. There's nothing. And, you know, you're you're stopping even actors casting a glance at each other because you think, oh, no, that'll give it away. (laughs) In fact, you need to leave, and you can leave clues, huge clues. So you need to relax the narrative and allow suggestions, breadcrumbs, a trail which people can begin to pick up. And you, you were always worried that they'll just solve the puzzle of the mm. film, but in fact, you're just helping them join in the puzzle hunt, really. And they won't get there, hopefully, before the actors get there and the narrative gets there. So hopefully they all arrive almost at the same time or you're milliseconds ahead of the audience is the ideal way. I think the chances of solving the uh, the mystery before it's revealed in this are quite remote. I know, they? but if you were working on it, you wouldn't have thought yes. that. You thought, oh no, that'll yeah. give it away. If it's, so you start introducing things. And there's a lovely motif in the film, for instance, where you, you hear and see James McAvoy tapping on a kind of glass as though he's in some kind of structure. And, and originally in the movie, that was only shown right at the end of the movie. 
And as soon as we went back to work on it, you realise that's a motif that you should string through the movie mm. and you you release that at different stages through the movie. And you're saying to people, he's aware something's wrong. He's trying to find what it is that's separating him from full knowledge. And you are, as well as the audience, you know something's not quite right, really, and you're on the journey to try and find that out like he is. Was there a process of test screening for this and, and what was the weirdest reaction that you got from people? It was, it was, we did, I like test screenings. A lot of directors I know worry about them and don't enjoy them. And the, the conversations that happen after them with what they call a focus group can be a bit painful. Hmm. Um, but I like actually sitting there and watching it with an audience who know nothing about what's going on, especially on a film like this, which is challenging, you know, in, in terms of can you solve the puzzle? You know, can you, this puzzle of their own making, can you contribute to it? So I, really enjoyed it and it, I found it very very helpful to the film the reason we set the film up was so and in particular the reason that we cast James because he has a classic warmth about him that is contradicted in the film it, it, you use that warmth that sense of the reliable narrator that he clearly occupies early on in the film you're playing with that and then it begins to twist and turn. And none of the characters, none of the three central characters are what they seem. That's obviously the reason for the film. And I know they do a lot of these test screenings in shopping malls and places like that. Was there, there a reaction to the nudity? Because you've talked a bit about how that really isn't a thing in cinema anymore. No, I, I think that's true. Although I'd love to be able to say there was walkouts or <laughs> outrage, or but there wasn't. And I think, I think that's partly to do with the fact that although it is obviously very explicit... It is embedded in the script, in the plot of the film. It is a crucial moment in the plot, which is, I'm sure, the only reason Rosario would agree to do it. And and the guys get their kit off as well um, for the girls and for the guys who are inclined that way. And, and, and it's kind of like... So it balances out, but it is embedded in the narrative as part of the narrative, as part of the puzzle. And it's a key clue that you need to pick up and watch carefully, so... Everybody likes to watch that kind of stuff carefully anyway, but, um, and they do. And, uh, so, no, funnily enough, they didn't mention it afterwards. Okay. And uh, James McAvoy very clearly remembers the first time he met you, which is when he came in to audition for 28 Days Later and you made him do a backflip. Do you remember much of that meeting? I don't remember the backflip, but I remember... Yes, I do remember meeting him, and we were... He's a terrific actor, and it's funny, actually. I think my memory of him, I, I retained from that, and from his... Because my only concern was that he was... I've always loved him as an actor, but I, my only concern was perhaps he was a little young for mm. the part. Because obviously this is a professional uh, fine art auctioneer, and so you felt like he's in his 30s. But of course James has just hit 30, and he's matured, really, as they do, you know, and they, they gather experience and um, and they bring a kind of different thing to the screen. And I think that's one of the reasons he wanted to play the part. Because, as I said, it does occupy slightly more familiar territory at the beginning he's very charming knowledgeable successful and appears to be your guide mm. and then he begins to turn and he goes on a journey and it is it was remarkable watching him work as he mapped his way because as a for an actor to map their way through the part of someone who is increasingly aware of something that he's unaware of is like really wonderful to watch and he he had these expressions that he had to try and help him understand. And he said, you know, he said that, that, that his brain, there was the executive in his brain. He constantly referred to this thing, the executive in his brain, which is supposedly what the function that keeps us breathing, i.e. something automatic that you don't think about, but which is essential to life. And he would say that his executive was constantly trying to intervene. Some, some part of his brain knew the full story and was constantly trying to warn him but because it is an automatic thing that you don't examine you don't get conscious about it couldn't break through to alert him and that was one of the ways that he helped map and track the part and you were working on uh this at the same time as you were just starting to work on the Olympic opening ceremony, which is now, it's remembered fondly, everyone's now acting as if they always thought it was going to be brilliant but before it actually happened the uh the perception was so negative. Like even when you presented what it was going to be, everyone was like, "Oh, it's going to be just a field for three hours." What was it like developing something that big in this atmosphere of people going, "Well, it's British, so we won't do it very well." Well, I I never felt that. I always felt very um, curiously. I, I mean, I'm not beyond cynicism myself, and indeed the work 
that we do, the kind of films we make are full of a kind of cynical mm -hmm. sense yeah. of humour sometimes. And I think that's one of our great safeguards as a country, is that we don't take ourselves too seriously, mm. and anybody who does take themselves too seriously, he's got it coming. <laughs> Everybody will sort them out quite soon. But I always felt very confident about this. I thought, no, it's time to actually, just for once in a while, to say, no, we're actually a decent lot. This is a pretty... This is a modern, progressive country uh, with a big history, which we probably feel which probably inhibits us sometimes too much, and that we deserve to actually hold our hand up and say, yeah, we're okay, really, and we, we produce some amazing things, not least of all the Industrial Revolution, which you handed out to everyone for good and bad, and, and other things as well, storytelling, which the second sequence celebrated, and also, you know, in our National Health Service, our universal health care, which we've kept despite all kind of pressures and... Um, criticisms and 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 that we've given something else to the world as well which is this gift that Tim Berners-Lee has just handed to the world on a plate really mm. and it's something that is very precious and could have gone in such a different way something that powerful that tool the world wide web which he made sure was enshrined in trust so that it's freely accessible to everyone whereas the movies the world we belong to would have had and has had the idea that corporations would control that Skynet. That's Skynet, isn't it? Yeah. That would control that. That's the way <laughs> movies ever imagined. Something this powerful could never be accessible to everyone. It would be controlled and manipulated mm. and darkness would emerge from it. In fact, it's been something that has proved to be, thanks to his vision, has been a wonder, really, of the world. And obviously we called our show Isles of Wonder. And uh, it was lovely to be able to celebrate that. And, and no, I, I, yeah, I know what you mean. We presented previews of it to people and they were still cynical. But I kind of knew, I kind of felt very strongly. I don't mm. know whether it's because of sports. I'm a big sports fan, so I'm inclined towards the Olympic ideal myself. Anyway, not practitioner in my eyes, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, just as a spectator. And, and, and certainly we, we, we felt that working with the, um, the Olympic volunteers and there were so many of them and they clearly were imbibed with this ideal and then when the torch arrived 70 days out you could see the country really wanted this mm. to work there, there was a the wars pulling for it and I think to be honest the media were behind that a little bit and quickly began to catch up that really we were going to have a party and it was going to be for all of us you know and thankfully lots of really famous people joined in as well in our ceremony but they all joined in on the basis that this was the people's party you know i was just going to ask what it's like to direct mr bean yeah i haven't heard you talk about that <laughs> no he you see there's so many people who think they're famous and you know and they are but he is seriously famous around yeah. the world you know i mean that is a in asia absolutely huge <sighs> Huge. I mean, when you sit down with a job like this, one of your one of the things you do. Well, you think who is, um, you know, who travels? Which of our icons travel? Yeah. You know, what of our history travels? Actually, really travels, and it comes down to a very small group of people. He's one of them. J.K. Rowling's another mm -hmm. one. You know, so it was lovely to be able to work with him. He is a perfectionist, and I'd been told that, and I'd heard that about certain comedians anyway. That it looks funny the process of arriving at it mm. to achieve that beauty is laborious and he is mm. unremittingly uh, challenging on himself and but he was a delightful man and he would he went into this wholeheartedly he was his his you know partner in crime Richard Curtis and Howard Goodall who helped with the music on it they were you know they know that spirit from comic relief of coming together to kind of celebrate something, to use their individual skills and their um, their achievements and put them to good effect, you know. So he was delightful. I loved watching him work, you know. I mean, you're kind of like, there's not a lot. I mean, I directed the film bit, you know, that we, the Chariots of Fire uh, reboot, <laughs> if we call it that. That was in the same place with as, as the original was made. That was weird going back there. And we used the same extras, except a generation or two generations later. <laughs> it's the same people. They were part of the rugby club that, that is based there. Because in the original, they were that's where the extras were drawn from. And we ran up and down that beach. And Rowan, God bless him, ran up and down that beach. And it's hard. We, you know, barefooted, running on sand is really tough again and again and again all day. But he keeps going. Like I say, he's a perfectionist. Yeah. And it was so well received on the night. I mean, beyond, I think, anyone's expectations, this rapturous reception to it. Um, w at what point in the ceremony did you realise, OK, this has worked on that night? 
I, I, I mean, it's, it's funny to say this, but it's the truth. I never had any doubts about it. And it's because I knew, I'd got to know so many of the performers, most mm-hmm. of whom were volunteers. And I knew that whatever was thrown at it, bad weather, something going wrong, technical malfunctions, all those things that can happen with a live show, I knew they would just sail through it. Nothing was going to stop them doing this. Particularly that first section where they cleared the grass and set up the Industrial Revolution. Because we'd rehearsed that in the rain out at Dagenham at this car park. Really miserable mm. conditions, like, oh my God. And they hadn't stood in their way then. And then you saw them come into the stadium, the boost they get being in the stadium. I thought, these guys will do anything, you know? So I always felt very confident about it. And uh, thankfully, that's not to say that we weren't lucky. Everything did go our way. The God smiled on us on the, on the night. So everything seemed to go off very well for everyone. I was very, obviously, you're very pleased for everyone. You know, you are a kind of custodian of it, really. It's such an enormous job with so many people involved. You kind of tend to get a disproportionate amount of the credit for it because you're really a custodian of, of something that you've helped create but really is embodied in these people. Just to segue back to Trance via Rick Smith, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and uh, there's a use of an M People track in Trance, which... Is astonishing. Yes, and he said that that came from you. Yeah. So how? Why? Why that track over that scene? Just a bit of it's a quick bit of Manchester, you know, suddenly <laughs> thrown in unexpectedly. It's nice to kind of like throw the curved ball, as, they, as the Americans call it, comes in there yeah. like out of nowhere, out of left field, and um, it's nice to be able to do that, you know. And uh, I always loved that track, and um, yeah, it was just it, and it shifted the tone of the. It's lovely to play with a scene like that. Originally, it was going to be a. The guy switches on the television. The murders are about to happen, you know, just to let everybody know. And the the guy switches on the television late at night to cover the sound of something appalling that's going on in another room. Originally, it was going to be a cop chase, late night American, you know, kind of like pursuit, motorway pursuit, highway pursuit, as they call them. But they're just too costly. (laughs) So that's the other reason and people are cheap. (laughs) Good on them. Thank God. Mike Pickering, thank you. Um, As your profile grows and grows and the films become more successful, do you start being offered, you know, the big Hollywood movies? I mean, you've always said it's not something that particularly interests you, but do they they come to you? And why is it that it doesn't interest you? Not as much, no. They're very... There's a misnomer in this country that Hollywood's dumb. They're not dumb at all. They're very sharp people out there. And they approached straight away after the first movie, Shallow Grave, because mm. they could see that we were filmmakers who wanted to do something a bit different, but still try and have that mainstream appeal. And that's what they're looking for. They want to kind of reinvigorate their product. It's still their product. It tends to be a genre, and it tends to have expectations of character that are reliable, you know, a hero that delivers whatever the challenge is. So... Um, it didn't really interest me in that way. I, d- I briefly did with a franchise that I am fascinated by, the Alien. You know, I, g- I briefly got involved in Alien Four or Alien Resurrection as it, mm. as, it as it was released. Um, but I quickly realised that it w- I, that was not the best way to use whatever skills I have. I'm much better with a smaller budget and trying to make it go a long way. And then I don't have the pressure of too much money, which I'm very self-conscious about. Money does get wasted on these huge films it's inevitable the more money you have the more of it's going to get frittered away and also the pressure of not being able to twist genre and and twist expectation of characters which is something that we especially do in trance you know where you can set up a film with three characters who really are not what they seem and you cannot rely on anyone Hmm. certainly you know for the whole passage of the film you're going to get challenged and I love that rather than because there's lots of films where you can you know exactly where you are and where you're going to go mm-hmm. and this is for people who like movies who want a bit of a uh, a challenge to that really and your your films also seem to have at least one shocking moment in them the, there's one in, there's one shot in particular in trance which people were talking about as I was leaving the screening involving a head yes um, <laughs> is there anything that you can't watch when when you're watching movies that you have to look away from or are you oh, just oh I'm a I'm, I'm a I'm an immersive person I get involved in movies and, and lots of them you know they can be also mm. I go and watch a lot of stuff and and I get fully immersed in it and I wince and shout and I remember seeing the raid yeah. that Indonesian film yeah. by that Welsh director I mean what? how does that happen I've no idea I remember seeing that in Stratford and there were like six men in the audience all on our own we saw it in an afternoon 
<laughs> and I remember, and we, you could hear us all audibly gasping, <gasps> wincing, looking away, you know, because it's, it's such a visceral film. Uh, the fighting is like you've never seen any. I've never. It, that absolutely yeah. raised the bar. You know, it was just extraordinary. So, yeah, I find... Um, I mean, another one is Drive. The violence in Drive from... What's his name? Oh, the Ryan Gosling in the no, elevator. Yeah, no, not him. The, the... Oh, what's he called? The famous guy. I've forgotten his name. Yeah. Uh, the curly hair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's a comedian no, Albert, director. Albert Brooks. Albert, Albert Brooks. Yeah. Albert Bro- uh, I mean, the violence from him is like, I, like, God, my jaw dropped. So I'm not beyond that at all. And I love that ingredient in film. I love the extremity that film can push you to. I think that's one of the reasons we love cinema, is we love going and seeing those boundaries pushed at. Mm. Um, I, it, it's like, what can you take? What can you, can you deal with this, you know? And it's, um, I think it's genuinely a cathartic experience for us as well. I think it's a necessary part of the way that we purge things from our lives and we see stuff explored that hopefully you'll never witness that in your life and obviously if you do it's a very different matter because it's no longer entertainment but hopefully you'll never and yet you do, you can go there briefly and then safely be you know parachuted back into life mm. you know um, you know the more ordinary lives we all lead really mm-hmm. you mentioned um alien before which is everyone knows is one of your favorite films and then with alien 4 you had the chance to be part of that but what was it that made you walk away from it because being part of something you love that much must be so tempting surely yeah tempting yeah i um i think with that it wasn't like i mean it was a wonderful opportunity i loved the franchise the you know the movies i love the movies all of them and um you know she's a she's a you know one of the world's great actresses you know sigourney weaver it's like and, and one of the reasons we did trance was to try and dominate a film with a with a, with a female character, which I've never done. You know, I've never had a female character in the engine room of a film in the way that she is in that movie, in those in all those movies, really. Um, it was as soon as we began work, I realised so much of this has to be prepared, particularly there because you were at early days of CG. CG wasn't really trusted; it was going to be puppet work. And it is a very, very technical exercise. And I love the directors who can pull that off. I really do, and I love watching those movies. But I'm not that kind of... I like the risk of turning up on the day and going, on. Oh, no, forget all that. Let's do it this way. You can't do that on those big movies. There's too much money at stake. There's too much has been invested already in the way that it's prepared. Plan A has to work, guys. Whereas I love going in and going, right, it's plan B. And you've always got plan A you can fall back on, so I'm not irresponsible... And it wouldn't damage the narrative of a film. But you can often find plan B's more interesting on the day, you know. So I like being able to react like that and, and develop the film organically on the day with the actors. Because that's the other thing, is the actors are different people every day. You know, they might have had they might have broken up with their girlfriend the night before and they come in to play a scene. It'd be very different than if they'd played the scene three days earlier, you know. And I like being able to respond to those changes of temperature do you think it would be different now because i think the uh i think you briefly touched on it earlier the respect for filmmakers even on blockbuster movies has changed so much now you look at someone like christopher nolan who came from a a similar um type of film that you started with and but the dark knight thing has become it's totally his baby he can almost do with it what he wants he hasn't got that you've got to stick with plan a do you think if you were offered something of that type now you might look at it differently well i know i think he's earned the right to do that through his genius really he's it's not just a question that's a retrospective analysis you're making of you know where he where he stands now Mm -hmm. how he actually got there is obviously his facility to to be both technically innovative dependable and forward thinking and original as well at the same time and you can see that from his his smaller movies if you like including following and memento that he's got that originality which he can harness to these huge spectacular movies and emerge out of them with something that is genuinely original and interesting and also dependable as well so it's his you you can't extrapolate from that that everyone could do that i think very very few people can pull that off what he's achieved just going back to Alien Resurrection, were you working with Joss Whedon on that? Because yeah, Joss Whedon wrote it and obviously since become a director. Right. Um, 
and a kind of star director really he's but he was always a wonderful writer you know and it was a, i thought a wonderful script what he'd done with the the way he'd rethought the the idea was brilliant absolutely brilliant yeah so and it was, it was it was more ambitious visually than the alien resurrection that eventually made it to screen i believe there were there was a big end scene with loads of aliens teaming around was that, <laughs> is, that, is that correct i can't remember i can't actually remember i think it did go through some changes and i think a lot of them some of the changes were to do with uh, money and mm. you know and to do with cost and um but that's true of you know i just did a q and a the other night with sam mendes and i i know because we were we were because of the olympics thing and the bond thing in the olympics we were we were closer to the bond thing than you than you might expect and we were hearing about them changing everything because they just couldn't afford it they couldn't raise the money they couldn't you know so that they they simplified it but obviously what sam negotiated brilliantly with them and, and barbara broccoli and michael wilson the whole team is that they made it didn't they, they didn't feel like that you know it, it, uh, and it made a huge amount of money and now they'll be able to go wherever they want and do whatever they want on the next one which they didn't do at, the, at that time mm. because it's a, it looks like a huge uh, and expected success what could possibly have gone wrong well there's lots of things but thanks to Sam and the team they didn't they managed to negotiate it very well and your name has been repeatedly mentioned in connection with that series but you've always said you don't you don't fancy it I'd love them you know I love watching them the books are part of my teenage life like an indelible part I read them all and multiple times um, they were literally my fantasy life as a teenager um, which they were for many people I think but I again for the same reasons I'm not really the guy to uh, it wouldn't get the best out of me really which is what you want to give you mm -hmm. know the, the very best of you and uh, there's a project that's um, it's been talked of for a long time and it started up again which is sequel to train spotting um, can you clear up what the situation is with that? Is it something you were planning to do, or is it something you just said maybe one day? It's not a tease. It's a, which I know it can probably come across as because we spend so often t coming back to it as each film is released. It's genuinely an ambition that we have that um, we would like to go back to the same characters played by the same actors, but a generation having passed. And the first time we considered it was the kind of ten year, but they it was clear that they because of the nature of actors these days they hadn't aged enough they wouldn't have looked different enough you know you would have to have gone into prosthetics makeup you would have been forcing the change on them whereas we wanted it to be something that felt very free that you were literally looking at these people that you knew these characters that you knew and what had happened to them in that 20 years because it's coming up 20 years in 2016 2015 wow, 2016 exactly and you go wow what's happened to me in that time and it's also that thing about do you stay in the same town? You know, do you stay bonded to the same friendships, even if they're destructive? Um, you know, did the splintering, what has happened to it? Where where are the people now? Have they loved? Have they lost? All that kind of stuff. It's really rich. Because I think if you're going to go back to something that has that kind of sustained affection for it, you've got to be very careful that you're not going back for the wrong reasons. Mm. You've got to have an integrity to go back to it. And then I think people will let you play with it a second time rather than just cashing in, which, although they might enjoy, they'll despise you for in the end, you know, because it's something that's clearly very close. Those characters are clearly very close to people's hearts. You know? So I know there's obviously a book uh, called Porno, but I don't know how closely you guys are planning to, to stick to that. Have you got ideas in your head of where these characters are? Has yeah, calmed yeah down? there are. John, John Hodge, who um, has done a bit of work on it already, and we hope to uh, continue that. Um, we've got, um, to be honest, we've got another film to make before then, I think. So it's 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 beginning its journey. So I can't be can't give you many more details than that. You haven't got Rick writing uh, Born Slippier yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did a I did I was on that Jonathan Ross show last night, and Damon Albarn was on with Bobby Womack, and he said, "You make sure I do the credit music, yeah, <laughs> if it happens, because he obviously did the credit music on the first on the first one. So there's one deal already been tentatively suggested. When was the last time you sat down and watched Train Spotting? very difficult to say do, do you ever watch your own stuff not not very often no yeah you, once you finish you you, you kind of it, it's it's like a two-year process obviously you're saturated with the experience and um you're also dealing with other people talking about them so you're kind of re-familiarizing yourself with them through second hand through other people's experiences of them it's very rare and i'm not the one i did but not for the whole of it was i I, I, oh, I don't know, it must be a year ago now, maybe a bit longer. 
I saw like 40 minutes of sunshine from my daughter had some friends round and they were watching it god bless them very loyal and but they seemed to be enjoying it and I watched I, they didn't know I was watching I was in the kitchen and I was watching over the shoulders I watched about 40 minutes and I thought oh that's quite good that but, uh, shouldn't really say that but that's what I thought yeah uh, you said when you were talking about uh, train spotting you said we've talked about it when you when you say we do you mean you've spoken to cast as well because you'd need them all back wouldn't you in order to do it yeah we would and we wouldn't I think the fair thing to do with them is to give them the script and because they will exercise quite rightly as we hope to do partly a quality control sure. that makes it feel like it's worth going back to it they will be particularly acute because they wouldn't want to go back to those parts I think unless they, I'm sure none of them need to go back to it they would want to go back to it and have to have something fresh to offer and, you'd, and, and as with the original it would want to be something where you felt they had enough to do it wasn't just tokenism so there'll be all sorts of factors in, involved in it. I think the fairest way is to approach them all simultaneously when we are ready to f with a script that we feel is worthy of approaching them. And then we'll see what happens then. As I said, you know, one of them may well exercise a quality control to say no, you know, whatever. And that's, and that's as it should be. I think. And it'd be your first film with Hugh McGregor and I don't know how many years. That would be quite a big thing. Yeah, I mean, it w I'd love to work with Ewan again. He's, I saw him in the impossible and I thought he was very moving as the father of those boys that reunion scene I was like in bits really um, so he's he's a fantastic actor and uh, and has been you know a very uh, it's very and been very gracious and generous considering how we treated him at the time which all went a bit haywire um, but he's a so yeah I well we'll keep our fingers crossed you know uh, when was the last time you saw him Mm, it's difficult to say you, you kind of I mean none of the actors do you kind of mix with kind of so it's but I have seen him a few times and he was very gracious he presented he was very kind they, you know they gave us an award in Hollywood and um, I think it was the BAFTA LA the Britannia Awards and um, he very very graciously presented it you know which is very noble of him and I really thought wow I really owe you one no mate so um yeah, so hopefully it'll all work out. And it sounds like, from what everything you're saying, that you're a big watcher of films. You go to the cinema a lot. Yeah. Who do you find particularly exciting at the moment? Oh, my goodness me. I mean, there's, there's so many people. I mean, you can't really begin to mention them. I mean, I mentioned that film I saw earlier, The Raid, mm. which I thought was just like... <laughs> but I also felt that... Um, I felt... Beast of the Southern Wild was extraordinary. A first-time film. Yeah, it was just like I could not believe what I was watching. You know, as a first-time filmmaker, that was quite extraordinary. There's another movie I loved, also by a first-time filmmaker, which I'm sure you guys will love because he is he is taking on a, a kind of one of those big movies that everybody loves to watch, which is was Chronicle by um, Josh Trank, movie, yeah. which I thought was took expected ingredients mm. and just dealt with them in a way that was so fresh and. Um, and it had this camera idea in it, which was just delirious and wonderfully carried off. So you know, there's all sorts of people that you um, that you admire. You know, do you watch TV shows as well? There's a lot of you know people say this is the golden age of TV with Breaking Bad and various great you know Game of Thrones. Any of that stuff? Appeal yeah, to you? no, I mean, I I don't watch as much TV as I should. I try and catch up on it because you hear so much about it. Like when we were doing the Olympics, the um, one of our key collaborators, the, one of the designers, Sutter at the Lab, she said, you've got to watch Modern Family. And we did. And it was, you know, like, that was class. <laughs> Absolute class. So there's obviously, it is a golden age of television, clearly. Yeah. And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be very happy to go back to television, for instance. I, have, I mean, I've left television at a, a time when it probably wasn't its golden age, and it has changed. And the, the uh, economics of it, the way it's set up now in America and around the world, with the subscription is just extraordinary what they and you read some of the scripts you do get some of the scripts sometimes and they are very very high standard but it feels like a writer's medium and when you say a writer's medium it's it's an actor's medium because it's that partnership that you get in theatre yeah. where the writer and the actor are absolutely in collaboration over the creation of a character you know and directors are along for the ride and can have great fun along for the ride yeah. but it's very much the ability to develop a character over a sustained and prolonged period, which is something that writers and actors enjoy probably more than a director, you know? Okay. Um, Nick was mentioning something uh, he read earlier about you saying that uh, Life Less Ordinary is your favourite of your own films. I'm <laughs> interested to know why why you picked that one. Well, no, you say that because 
one, one, you, you, you do say that because <clears throat> it's the one that's despised, really. It's the, <laughs> it's the unloved one. It's a bit one. strong. Yeah, maybe, but it's, it's unloved, you know, and uh, you always feel for those because others get looked after, almost especially train spotting, Slumdog Millionaire, those kind of 28 days later. They've such fans, you know, that they get kind of. And the ones that are neglected and nobody cares to mention, those are the ones you try and <laughs> you try and big up and mention, you know, so they don't get forgotten. Because you're equally proud of them, you know. That's not to say it's as good a film as other films or, or a lesser film than other films, but you, your own relationship with them isn't judgmental in that way, not at all. It has got great costumes that film. I yeah. always think of that in True Romance as being the, the primary colour kind of. Yes, all the the stills are great. Yeah, and the acting's fantastic. I mean, I thought Ewan and uh, Cameron were a fantastic partnership in it. I think the film was probably too strange a mix of conventional rom-com and the usual thing we try and do, which is twist the genre. We probably twisted it too much for people, <laughs> you know, for what people could accept. And there are some very strange goings on in the film, and some violence, and uh, you know, so which people probably find a bit difficult, but. Uh, no, I still have affection for it, and I often tell the joke, which is that it, ex- it is that it um, it illustrates one of the um, supposed totems of the film industry, which is that if you have a hit, a big hit around the world, there's always somewhere where the movie doesn't work. There's always a territory where the movie doesn't work, and conversely, thank God, when you have a flop, there's always one territory where it's a hit, and of course. In Life Less Ordinary's case, which was a big flop, it was Belgium, where it was number one for three weeks. Really? <laughs> just, just like, how do you explain that? Wow, that's crazy. Did, yeah, have you ever asked a Belgian <laughs> no. why they love it? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm worried that they'll say, no, that's not true. Actually. <laughs> you know, so I'll just hang on to it as I know it. And uh, what are you working on at the moment? Well, weirdly, we're working on, um, a, most immediately... Um, Christine Colson, the producer, and I are working on a couple of period movies. Interesting. Yes. Um, and that is a... Obviously, you think, you know, in this kind of publicity mode, you think, oh, that's a change of genre. And it wasn't intentional in that way. They just kind of... Because when you're not in promotional mode like this, you, you're not really thinking about how it fits in or anything like that. And it just... You suddenly turn around and realise, ah... They're, they're both period movies, the, the the scripts that we're working on at the moment. So, um, yeah. And when you say when you say period, that yeah, they could cover a huge amount of time. Is so either of them set in Belgium? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's. Um, I can confirm that. Um, although bits of it is nearby, actually, in one of them, you can't really say what they are because they it would kind of give it away too much, really. Really? Okay. Yes, it would. It would. And 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 they're not at this. I mean, I say that just because it's curious that we found ourselves working on period movies. Normally, you wouldn't say anything because they're a long way from actually being finished or, you know, you tend to work a couple of years on a script. And in that time, a script will sometimes, of its own accord, weirdly kind of drop away and come back later. And there's no prescribing for that. You can't predict whether that will happen or not. But, yeah, that's what we're working on at the moment. And when you say period movies, do you mean they are companion pieces? or No, no, they're they're quite separate. Unless some clever person decides to make a trilogy of them, you know, which is, I think, often what happens in movies. That was like with the Tarantino thing. Disparate things are kind of like, oh, yeah, here's a history trilogy. Yes, yeah. All that kind of stuff. I'm curious, um, you're credited as co-screenwriter on 127 Hours but you've never written a script yourself have no, you ever I'm not really a writer and I, it's interesting what we were talking about earlier about television and character the way that writers write character I did a, I did um, the first few passes on 127 Hours um, partly because I, well I, almost entirely because the writers that we approached including Simon Balfoy our kind of who had just come off Sundog Millionaire well, with, and who was a climber himself couldn't see how to do it and it was Christian who eventually said Christian Coulson said to me you've, you've got to do it yourself because you clearly can see it and nobody else can so I did a draft a couple of drafts and it, and they were very I thought yeah that's quite good and you know um, seemed alright and then we sent it to Simon again to Simon Balfoy again and he said yeah I can see it now and so he, ca- he took over and what he brought with the draft that he delivered taught me why I'm reinforced why I'm not a writer because he illustrated it entirely through character you know I'd done the dynamics the pyrotechnics the structure I was kind of able to carry that you know the kind of like the filmmaking part of it but the character I could not illustrate it through character in the way that he effortlessly did and it reminded me of what they are that's why they're amazing 
screenwriters. You know, they do that other job as well, the pyrotechnics, the structure. Uh, they give you the opportunity. They present you with that opportunity, which you embellish and develop. But they also they provide the character for the actor. You know, the humanity, the heart of the story. Really so. Uh, Frank Cottrell-Boyce and um, several other people, when we did Peace and Empire uh, about trance, were saying that you have served as a kind of mentor to them in a way, like pointing them in directions that they didn't know they could go in. When you were starting out, was there anyone in the business who fulfilled that function with you? Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate. I I um, started working in the theatre, and I had I worked for a company called Joint Stock, who were a touring company, and they were run by two guys, Max Stafford Clark and Bill Gaskell, great directors, who you learnt a lot from just watching. And then Max Stafford Clark took over the Royal Court Theatre for a famous tenure, um, where he developed new writing. And he took me there as an assistant director, really. I started off stage managing, kind of ASMing. And I remember going up, there were, there, there were these bursaries that you could get, Thames Television Bursaries, they were called, which the... I, and then there were Arts Council bursaries as well for these young directors. And I kept going up for them and kept being turned down. <laughs> I kept failing to get them. And he kept me on. And he shouldn't have done because he didn't really have the money. But he showed faith in me to keep me on like that. And you benefit from something like that enormously. And another guy, a very famous guy actually now, who's famous as an actor, Richard Wilson, also gave me a lot of uh, advantages as a director, helping him direct a, a show. And so you, you benefit from those people. And then, and then I moved into television because I'd always wanted to direct on camera. And I wrote to, when I got that job, which came out of some success in the theatre, I wrote to Alan Clark, who's a director who I'd really admired. And I asked whether I could go and watch him work on the set. And he invited me along. And he was someone who I remained friends with. And uh, he inspired me a lot, really. And he, interestingly enough, for such a radical director, and he was very radical... You know, he's the director of Scum, and he would uh, often develop camera techniques which were very unusual for the time and very risk-taking. But he always said, make sure you get your coverage because it doesn't matter how interesting you think you're being on the day. Come the editing room, if you haven't got the coverage, you'll be exposed. You really will. And so it was very interesting that he was able to remain very risk-taking, and yet he knew his obligation was to make sure he delivered the story in a way that can only be done in the editing room, really, where films are always ultimately made. Have you ever had a nightmare where you've got to the editing room and, and suddenly realised that there's something missing from oh, the puzzle? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And fortunately, because the films have been successful, you tend to have enough financing which allows you to keep a bit back so that you can do reshoots, pickups, which inevitably occur as part of a filmmaking process. I always used to be... When it ha did happen, I'd always be... Because I come out of television where well, you don't have that facility, I would always be crushed with disappointment within myself that I hadn't thought of something. But now I've grown to realise it's a tool that's wonderful because you, you can watch a film and not only see what you fail to cover or miss, what you've missed, but also something that you can contribute with the hindsight of seeing elements of the story brought together and something you can add to it. So, for instance, in Trance, there's a beautiful little sequence where she... There's a little montage sequence where she is shown in her daily work with people who have premature ejaculation problems, smoking problems, spider fear problems, fear of flying problems, and she, you see her everyday work. And it's a guide, really, to show why she might take such risks as she does, because her day job is not that fulfilling. It's repetitive and boring, and, in, and revolves around people improving their golf putting on the green, things like that. And we didn't have that in the original script, and it wasn't in the original shoot, but as soon as we watched the film, we thought, no, you should see a little glimpse of what makes up her ordinary day. And so we went back in with Rosario and shot, and a, and a bunch of very talented extras, actually, who and John's brilliant bit of script writing. And we went back in and, and, and illustrated that. And it leavens the film as well, because it's humorous and, you know, and it's, and it's relaxing before you get into the darker stuff. It's a really nice moment. Yeah. Did you go and do any therapy to see what that world is like? I didn't, no, because directors are control freaks, really, <laughs> who can't relax enough. You would not make a good person to sit yeah, in the chair. Yeah, why are you asking me that? that yeah, it's <laughs> just like, um, you just know where you're going to relax enough. The actors did it. Um, Rosario did a lot of it, I think, and did a lot of research privately, when it works best, I think. We tried with James and Vincent to put them under mm -hmm. in the rehearsal room with a with a professor of psychology, actually, a hypnotist, who 
was uh, very useful to us, David Oakley, I think he was called, and he tried with them and he relaxed them and it was very sweet, but nothing emerged <laughs> worth mentioning. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's it's very difficult in a public arena like that unless you are one of that five to ten percent who, as the film says, are highly suggestible and they're the people that stage hypnotists pick out. They're not fake. They're not actors pretending stooges. They are they select from that they can see in that audience who are the five to ten percent who are likely to want to change, to want to disappear into mm -hmm. an illusion, you know. And they who they use and uh, so the shows are genuinely magic. It's mm. it's believable, absolutely believable and and it's obviously the central premise of our film as well that James McAvoy's character is one of those. And so you can go into an increasingly deeper, deeper series of trances as the film moves on. You're obviously able to handle a huge amount of pressure. What has been kind of the darkest hour for you that you'd maybe want to use hypnosis <laughs> to forget all about? What's been, the, what's been the, the closest you've come to a meltdown? Or to a meltdown? Um, not really. I mean, you have tough days. There's, uh, there's days where you have to be pretty brutal sometimes, and which is not you're not very comfortable with, but it is necessary sometimes. Um, I suppose the darkest hours are really when... Um, Either you fall seriously behind. Um, it doesn't so much happen so much now because you, for, for your, you, you, you're lucky enough to have enough money to uh, have a kind of a buffer within the film itself. But I certainly remember on hundred on um, Shallow Grave, the financiers. There are the, the, the film finances people who are people who insure the film, and they're the people who the financiers pay. To, they pay a premium to to make sure that they deliver the film on cost and they have the power to come in and fire you really it's weird the way it works but they do because they're literally the insurance company and I remember we were so far behind on <laughs> Shallow Grave because we were trying to be so ambitious that we had to there's a sequence at the end there's a fight sequence at the end where they all fight together and kick each other and stab each other with forks and hit each other's heads in fridges and stuff like that and originally that was going to take place in a dark shadowy noirish kitchen you know which would be very graphic and they made us turn the lights on because they'd say they said to the cameraman you had these terrible crisis meetings well brian brian stefano wonderful cameraman how could we speed this up and he said the only way you could speed it up literally is for someone to go into the room and switch the lights on you know rather than it happening in a dark kitchen at night and then sure enough if you watch the movie somebody one of the three for some reason rushes into the kitchen and switches the lights <laughs> on it's like and that speeds up the process so that was a ironically given all the light available was a very dark hour for me but Slumdog Millionaire that wasn't a, uh, one of those because that, that must have logistically been yeah no I always loved um, being there and shooting there and it was a lot of pressure for other people like the producer Christian it was a big pressure on him trying to make it work I I believed in the city and I, I not just as a as, as an experience but I believed in it as something that would get reflected in the movie eventually and that it was clear to me partly actually out of the experience of making the beach in Thailand in a very different way that we were going about this in the right way which is that we took very few people with us from here we trusted the local industry to deliver the film to us and that involves a lot of trust because they don't. They know you can't control the city. It's just you're you're foolish. It's like trying to hold back the tide. You're not gonna. You're just fooling yourself. You've got to go with it, and it will reward you in the end in ways that are unexpected but are better than you anticipated even. And so I was always very comfortable. And in fact, Christian had to drag me away at the end. I would I just kept going. You, I couldn't stop. Every day <laughs> brings something new. It's like infinite. You know the varieties it throws at you. So. Um, he had to shut the account, the bank accounts, and kind of drag me away to the plane, and off we went to go and edit it, really, you know. Um, directors are not traditionally people who uh, will get stopped in the street, because a lot of people don't know what they look like. Yeah. Um, but since the Olympics and the whole you know, national hero thing, uh, how, has your, how has it changed the way people react to you? I suppose, uh, yes, the Olympics thing changed it a bit, because it introduced people to you who either only partially sometimes know your films certainly don't follow them yeah. in the way that um, you know we're all film fans and um, 
so previously only people would come up who were interested in directors which is not many I mean even if they know your face they're not really interested in directors they want, <laughs> they're interested in actors if anything at all so the people who would approach you would be people who are really genuinely interested in film you know want to talk about film and stuff like that which is lovely since the Olympics yes you get a very different but again it's people who they don't really know much about the business and they just want to say something very genuine I, I've had a, a wonderful breadth of experience of people from all walks of life who come up to you and say hey thank you for that and they that's it they say that's all I wanted to say I just wanted to say that and they're off and they clearly don't know your movies from Adam you know but it's lovely um, um, or maybe they know Slumdog or Trainspotting but not many of them really um, and it's lovely to have that contact because it was obviously we set the uh, we set the show up to be very much we said this is and it says it in the show this is for everyone it was a people's party a people's show genuinely and everybody that we invited to participate in it was told that, and that's how they were participating. This wasn't a showcase for talent. We were showcasing the best of ourselves, you know, people like Rowan Atkinson and everybody, but they were all participating in it in the way that they knew that this was a celebration of the whole of us, you know, and, the, um, and even the Queen in making herself so available, ironically, joined in with that, you know, that someone who's meant to be so separate from us all and who'd gone through a very formal jubilee celebration previously new to kind of join in in a way and make herself accessible in a way that really surprised people you know we've got time for a couple of quick questions um being empire we're contractually obliged to ask you one question about star wars <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've made your views clear on it before it's not really your cup of tea is there anything about star wars that you like oh i mean i think the first three films are extraordinary pieces of filmmaking i i what i've said is that i was a i was a punk and i missed them you know when you were a punk kind of like you didn't go and want, want to watch what was looked like kids films you know it's like it'd be the last thing you want to watch if you can imagine being a 20 year old punk which is when they came out you know and punk hit and I would exactly coincided with that as a young man and so I only caught up with them later which has stopped me having the obsessive relationship <laughs> that we which, have which this office has <laughs> and which um, so many so many people have and so many filmmakers you meet have that kind of I caught up with them later you know and um, and obviously you, you you clearly have because it applies to so many generations but clearly the infection point I missed you know that infection point where you can't just see them as you know very very well made films no they are national they are international priceless treasures that infection point where you regard them like that I missed you know so favourite Star Wars character <laughs> I don't I don't I mean I like those I like you know the, the I like the robots and the kind of Chewbacca's and R2-D2 and uh, C-3PO and kind of I like those you know I, I love Harrison Ford you know he's like a you know um, and he's coming back they're all coming back Again, are they? <laughs> so you'll be down there in Stratford in a couple of years watching that. Uh, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Final question. Um, you're obviously very keen on music and you've got a huge breadth of knowledge about music. What, what are you listening to at the moment that you're really enjoying? Oh, God. The, I mean, um, that Maccabees album, I, which my daughter's introduced me to, uh, To the Wild, Given to the Wild, is like a pretty amazing album, I think. Um, I love that Wretch 32 album. Um, I got introduced to him through the Olympics, through a guy who worked with on the Olympics, Kenrick Sandy, and uh, stuff like that, and lo lots, of, lots of stuff, you know? So, as always, there's lots of stuff. Those would be two I'd particularly pick out, yeah. And on that note, thank you very much, Danny Boyle. Thank you for coming in. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very guys. much. Pleasure. Very enjoyable, thank you. It's been a pleasure, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, no, that was very nice. That was really